the nine events of the messianic corroboration and the three messianic condemnations lead us to the messianic cessation in Matthew 27, 33 to 66. Indeed, Matthew's gospel record, which began with the messianic chronology, now arrives at the climax, the death of Jesus, the Messiah. Matthew presents four aspects of the messianic cessation, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the guards. Each aspect is deliberately chosen to provide evidence that Jesus the Messiah genuinely died. Now, Jesus had to die for two critical reasons. First, he had to die because the punishment for sin was death. According to Romans 3.23, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 declares that the wages of sin is death. And that death is not just physical, it's spiritual. And spiritual death results in eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. And so the only means by which we could escape eternal separation from God was for someone to stand as a substitute in our place. And Jesus was that substitute. He died in our place to provide a way of escape from the lake of fire. Second, Jesus had to die because a sacrificial death was required to reconcile humanity with God. When Adam and Eve sinned, God slaughtered a lamb to provide an atonement or covering for their sin. From that moment forward, God's people were required to sacrifice a lamb to demonstrate their repentance of sin and faith in God. Indeed, it is as Abraham promised Isaac in Genesis 22.8, God will provide him for himself the lamb. John 1.29 declares that Jesus is the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. God made Jesus who knew no sin to be the sin offering on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Now, the first aspect of the messianic cessation is Jesus' crucifixion in Matthew 27, 33 to 44. The crucifixion. Let's begin reading in Matthew 27 and verse 33. And when they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull, they gave him wine to drink mixed with gall. And after tasting it, he was unwilling to drink. And when they had crucified him, they divided up his garment amongst themselves by casting lots. And sitting down, they began to keep watch over him there. And above his head, they put up the charge against him, which reads, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. At that time, two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. And those passing by were hurling abuse at him, wagging their heads and saying, you who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priest also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him and saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him if he delights in him. For he said... I am the Son of God. The robbers who had been crucified with him were also insulting him with the same 
words. So again, the first aspect of the messianic cessation is Jesus' crucifixion. After leading Jesus out of the praetorium, the soldiers brought him to a place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. This execution site known as Golgotha is a Greek transliteration of the Aramaic name, which Matthew renders as the place of the skull. Now, while the exact location has not been conclusively determined, it was obviously alongside of a roadside, as Matthew notes that people were passing by hurling abuses at Jesus. According to Mark 15, 25, it was the third hour when they crucified Jesus. The third hour refers to the third hour after dawn. According to Jewish reckoning, the dawn of the day was marked at 6 a.m. And thus the third hour of the day would be 9 a.m. The condemnations of the Sanhedrin, Pilate, and the Roman guard all occurred between 6 a.m. and 9 a.m. So at 9 a.m., Jesus was crucified. Now, archaeology has discovered that crucifixions were performed by nailing an individual to an upright vertical pole. Sometimes, however, a horizontal crossbeam was used, which would be attached to the top of the horizontal pole. The vertical poles were kept at the crucifixion site. The cross that Simon the Cyrene carried for Jesus in Matthew 27, 32 was the horizontal cross beam. So two poles were placed on the ground and the person laid down with his back on the cross. Their wrists were nailed to the horizontal cross beam and their feet to the vertical pole. The cross would then be raised upright and dropped into a pre-dug hole. Albeit painful, The spikes supported the person's weight. As the individual hung from the spikes, breathing became more difficult. And so the person would push on his nailed feet and pull with his nailed wrist to catch their breath. After days of constant pulling and pushing, the individual would weaken and suffocate to death. Often the soldiers would break the person's legs to hasten the process of death. You see, crucifixion is a long, painful death by suffocation. The Creator who breathed life into humanity was now nailed to a cross by humanity and now Himself struggles to breathe. And so as the soldiers nailed Jesus to the cross, they gave Him wine to drink mixed with gall. Now the term gall, kole, indicates that the wine was mixed with something bitter. According to Mark 15, 23, the wine was mixed with myrrh. However, we need to note that the verb myrrh, spernizo, means to add myrrh or something else into wine as a narcotic. You see, the bitter wine was actually a sedative for crucifixion victims to dull their pain. The Jewish leaders wrote in the Sanhedrin 43a of the Talmud that as to him who goes forth to be put to death, they give him a glass of wine containing a grain of frankincense so as to distract him. As it is said, give strong drink to him who is ready to perish and wine to the bitter in the soul. Proverbs 31 verse 6. Regardless the reason for giving Jesus the sedative, it was a fulfillment of Psalm 69 21. They also gave me gall for my food. 
Matthew records that Jesus was unwilling to drink it. Reluctant to decrease his suffering, Jesus refuses the sedative. He wanted to be completely conscious. He wanted to be completely aware, lest he succumbs to temptation through the weakness of his flesh. After raising and setting the cross, the soldiers divided up his garment amongst themselves by casting lots. Again, their action was a fulfillment of another Old Testament messianic prophecy. Psalm twenty-two, eighteen pronounces, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Approximately 1,000 years before the actual event, the psalmist prophesied that what would happen to Jesus' garments. Now, let's speak to the issue of the casting of lots. Casting lots does not refer to rolling dice or gambling. It was how people made decisions. Solomon declared in Proverbs 16.33 that the lot is cast into the lap, but every decision is from the Lord. God used the casting of lots to divide up the land amongst the tribes. He used the casting of lots to divide the Levites amongst the twelve tribes. He used the casting of lots to divide priestly service among the Levites. And so after praying to the Lord, the apostles themselves cast lots to determine Judas' replacement in Acts 1.26. And so, believer, we need to be careful that we do not use the soldier's casting of lots for Jesus' garment as a proof text against gambling. If casting lots is gambling, then God is guilty of gambling. Matthew goes on to note that sitting down, they began to keep watch over him. Now, the action was to prevent anyone from trying to rescue Jesus. And it's interesting here that the verb sitting is in the present tense. It's an ongoing action, while the verb keep watch is in the perfect, excuse me, the imperfect tense. Now, Matthew's choice of these two different verb tenses communicates the idea that the crucifixion went on for hours. Above the heads of the crucified, their crimes would be written on a wooden placard called a titulus, so people would know the reason for their execution. The sign above Jesus' head read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Remember that religious leaders charged Jesus with blasphemy for claiming to be the Messiah. And when they presented their case to Pilate, they accused Jesus of treason against Rome by claiming to be the king of the Jews. And though Jesus was innocent of all the charges, Pilate nonetheless condemns him to death for the crime of treason. And without realizing it, by writing this is Jesus the king of the Jews, Pilate was declaring that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. Along with Jesus, two robbers were crucified with him. The term robbers, leistes, indicates that these men were rebels against Rome. In particular, their rebellion took the form of plundering and looting, likely from their Roman oppressors. Jesus was crucified between these two robbers, implying that his cross was initially intended for Barabbas. The people passing Jesus were hurling abuse at him. Interesting, that verb hurling abuse translates the Greek word blasphemio, which technically means to speak evil of someone to ruin their reputation. But again, it also means simply to 
blaspheme. No doubt they were trying to ruin Jesus' reputation. However, in doing so, they blasphemed the Son of God. In particular, they said, You who are going to destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you're the Son of God, come down from the cross. This specific insult, by the way, reveals the identity of these individuals. The night before when the Sanhedrin was looking for witnesses against Jesus, two men came forward accusing Jesus of stating that he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. Now the only way these individuals could have hurled that exact insult was if they had been present when he was accused of it. These individuals were undoubtedly part of those, that crowd of supporters for the religious leaders. Along with their supporters, the religious leaders also blasphemed Jesus, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross, and we'll believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now, if he delights in him. For he said, I'm the son of God. It is as the famed English preacher once said, William Booth once said, they claimed they would have believed if he had come down. We believe because he stayed up. Now these religious leaders unwittingly were the tool of Satan, the tempter. You see, when Satan initially tempted Jesus, he wanted Jesus to prove he was the Son of God by turning a stone into bread and by jumping off the temple so the angels could catch him. In his first temptation, Jesus was physically weak after having fasted 40 days and nights. And it was at that moment that Satan tried to attempt Jesus by appealing to his hunger and by quoting scripture. Now, Jesus is physically weak because of all he endured over the last 12 hours. The tempter again challenges him to prove his deity by escaping the cross in a moment of great weakness. And like Satan, those religious leaders quoted Scripture as they tempted Jesus. Notably, they quoted Psalm 22, 8. He trusts in God, let God rescue him if he delights in him. Nonetheless, removing himself would not prove he was the Son of God, but it would disqualify him from being the sacrifice for sin. Even at his lowest, Jesus, our Savior, remained faithful despite his suffering. The second aspect of the messianic cessation is Jesus' death in Matthew 27, 45 to 56. Matthew 27, 45 to 56. Let's read, starting in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the land until the ninth hour. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. Immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, he filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. Coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered into the holy city and appeared to many. 
now the centurion, and those who were with him, keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly this was the Son of God. Many women were there looking on from a distance, who had followed Jesus from Galilee while ministering to him. Among them was Mary Magdalene, and Mary the mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Again, the second aspect of the Messianic cessation is Jesus' death. Now, there's four unusual events associated with Messiah's death. One, the city's engulfed in darkness. Two, the veil of the temple is torn in half. Three, there's a great earthquake. And number four, the spirits of the righteous dead appear in Jerusalem. Now, Jesus had been nailed to the cross, you'll recall, at the third hour or at 9 a.m. Matthew now notes that from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. Now again, following that Jewish reconciliation of days, the sixth hour is 12 p.m. and the ninth hour is 3 p.m. In other words, the city of Jerusalem was engulfed in darkness for three hours. And the unusualness of this darkness cannot be ignored. Twelve in the afternoon is when the sun is at its highest position in relationship to the earth. And to those claiming this was an eclipse, it would be impossible as Passover always occurs during a full moon. This darkness was a supernatural message of God's judgment. Indeed, darkness is always associated with God's judgment. God caused darkness to fall upon Egypt for three days before the first Passover in Exodus 10.22. According to Amos 8 and verse 9, during the tribulation, God again is going to plunge the world into darkness. He's going to make the sun go down at noon and make the earth dark in broad daylight. Matthew now moves the scene forward and says that about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The ninth hour is 3 p.m. At that very hour, the priests were sacrificing the Passover lambs. And as the Passover lambs are sacrificed, Jesus cries out and quotes Psalm 22.1, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You see, friends, at the very moment, Jesus, the Passover lamb, became our sin offering. He bore the sins of humanity. God the Father transferred to God the Son the penalty of our sin, death. And as a result, God the Father could not look upon God the Son. The unbroken communion between Father and Son was severed at that moment. It was as if the Father had said, Depart from me, I never knew you. You see, Jesus experienced spiritual death. He experienced separation from God for the punishment of our sin. Now, some bystanders misheard Jesus and said, he's calling for Elijah. Thinking Jesus was asking for help, someone compassionately offered him a drink of sour wine. Others, sadly, continued mocking, saying, well, let's see whether Elijah will come and save him. Though Matthew does not record Jesus' final words, he does note that Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now, Jesus' death was not merely spiritual, it was physical. Jesus died as a human man for all humanity. And it must be underscored that no one took Jesus' life from him. He willingly 
yielded up his spirit. He chose the time of his death in his sovereign power, the same time as the Passover lambs were slaughtered for sin. Indeed, as Paul declares in 1 Corinthians 15, 7, Christ, our Passover, also has been sacrificed. Now, verse 51 begins with the term, Behold, meaning pay attention to what comes next. In other words, what occurs next relates directly to Jesus' death. And notably, three miraculous events occur demonstrating what Messiah's death accomplished. And as such, these events cannot be overlooked. First, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This is the veil that separates the holy place and the holy of holies in the temple. The holy of holies was where the ark of the covenant was kept, which represented the presence of God. Ceremonially, the veil separated the people from God's presence. Only once a year could the high priest enter the Holy of Holies, and then only with the blood of a lamb. And the moment Jesus died, the veil was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, so we understand, this veil was 60 feet long, 30 feet high, and 4 inches thick. And due to its size, it required 300 priests to lift it. It was torn from top to bottom, Stressing that not man, but God tore the veil. God demonstrates in the tearing of the veil that Jesus' substitutionary, sacrificial death clears the way for anyone to approach Him. Friends, we today have open access to the Father, to God the Father, because of Jesus' death. As Hebrews 4.16 proclaims, Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So the veil was torn. Second, the earth shook and the rocks were split. There was a great earthquake. Romans 8.22 declares that the whole creation groans and suffers due to the curse. And now as the Creator dies to pay the penalty of sin, the creation itself is shaken to its core. The veil is rent. The earth is shook. And number three, third, as a result of the earthquake, the tombs were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. That event demonstrates that Messiah's death paid the penalty of sin. You see, the righteous who died prior to Christ's death were unable to enter into heaven until permanent redemption could be made. And so they went to a place in Sheol known as Abraham's bosom or paradise until the Messiah died as a once-for-all-time sin offering. These individuals could not enter heaven. Ephesians 4, 8, and 9, though, reveals that when Jesus descended into Sheol after his death, he led captive a host of captives. That is, he brought forth the spirits of the righteous, the Old Testament saints who were kept in paradise. And Matthew reveals the exact time that these resurrected saints appeared. They were coming out of the tombs after the resurrection. They entered the holy city and appeared to many. 72 hours after his death, Jesus was resurrected. And immediately after his resurrection, the spirits of Old Testament era saints appeared. 
to many, confirming the efficacy of Jesus' death and His resurrection. And when Jesus ascended into heaven, in the hours after the resurrection, He took those Old Testament saints with Him. And so when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, the centurion and the other Roman guards declared, Truly, this was the Son of God. It is amazing. The first to declare that Jesus the Messiah was indeed the Son of God were pagan Gentiles. And while the religious leaders and their cronies blasphemed God, these pagan Gentiles recognized that Jesus was God in the flesh. While it is noted elsewhere that John was there with Jesus' mother, None of the other ten disciples witnessed the crucifixion. However, many women were there looking on from a distance. You see, these ladies had followed Jesus and ministered to Him throughout His ministry. And in His death, they continued to follow and minister to Him. Friends, we can learn much of what faithfulness looks like to God from these women. They were faithful in the face of danger. They were faithful in the face of fear. They were faithful in the face of loss. They were faithful in the face of death. They could have been arrested, imprisoned, and even put to death for their association with Jesus. Nonetheless, they were faithful. And it is a sad fact. It is a sad state of affairs that today many believers lack faithfulness it is sad to say that too many believers are not faithful in the good times, let alone in the bad times. And I challenge you to examine yourself. Examine whether you're truly faithful to God. Ask yourself, are you like the ten who fled? Or are you like the women who stayed and faced danger, fear, loss, and death? Because of their faithfulness to His Son, the Father honors them by memorializing them in the Holy Writ. Now, if we take a moment to cross-reference all four gospel narratives, we have a snapshot of four key women at the cross. Mary Magdalene, Mary of Nazareth, Salome, and the other Mary. Now, Mary Magdalene is the leader of the women based on her preeminence in the various list of women. And then the other Mary is the wife of Clopas, She's also the mother of James the Less and Joseph. Now, Hegesippus, A.D. 110-180, was a Christian. He was an opponent of Marcion and the Gnostics. He asserts that Clopas, also known as Alphaeus, was the brother of Joseph, Mary's husband, and Jesus' uncle. Therefore, Mary is Jesus' aunt. James the Less, who was one of the twelve apostles, would be Jesus' cousin. Then we have... Salome, who is the sister of Mary of Nazareth, and the mother of James and John, the sons of Zebedee, again making James and John the cousins of Jesus on his mother's side. And then, of course, Mary of Nazareth is the mother of Jesus. The third aspect of the messianic cessation is Jesus' burial in Matthew 27, 57 to 61. 
Matthew 27, 57 to 61. When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself also had become a disciple of Jesus. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him, and Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had hewn out in the rock. And he rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb and went away. And Mary Magdalene was there, and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. Again, the third aspect of the Messianic cessation is Jesus' burial. Now, Jesus' burial is not an aspect of his passion that should be overlooked. On the one hand, it stresses the genuineness of Jesus' physical death. And on the other hand, his burial is a critical element of the gospel message. As Paul explains in 1 Corinthians 15, 1-4, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. And so if we overlook the burial, we're affronting the gospel. Now notice that Matthew says it was evening. The verb was, genomai, means it was becoming evening. The day was undergoing a change. We could better render it this way. It was becoming evening. Now evening, apsias, refers to that part of the day between late afternoon and nightfall. According to Jewish reckoning, evening is 3 p.m. to 6 p.m. And following Jesus' death at 3 p.m., a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph, who himself would also become a disciple of Jesus, went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Now Joseph's request is made in light of Deuteronomy 21-23, which says, His corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is a curse of God, so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Indeed, Jesus was accursed because he was the sacrifice for sins. Now, the text identifies two things about Joseph. First, he was rich. And second, he was a disciple. Now, according to Mark 15, 23 and Luke 23, 51, Joseph was waiting for the kingdom of God. Luke 23, 50 tells us that Joseph was a good and righteous man. The fact that he was rich and a disciple indicates that while it is difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God, it is not impossible. And obviously at some point, Joseph repented and believed in the gospel. Now Mark 15, 23 also reveals that Joseph was a prominent member of the council, the Sanhedrin. However, Luke 23, 51 tells us that he had not consented to their plan and action. You see, Joseph had likely been a secret disciple up to this point. But after what he has just witnessed, he becomes a man of courage. And his courage is demonstrated by going to Pilate and requesting Jesus' body. His devotion to Jesus overcame his fear of censure from the other religious leaders. What a contrast to the apostles who had publicly followed Jesus and then abandoned him. Oh, that we would follow Joseph's example. Oh, that we would become men and women of courage. That, our, that courage would overcome our fear of what others think. And so after securing Jesus' body, Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. Now Joseph was not alone in preparing Jesus for burial. According to John 19.39, Nicodemus, who had first come to him by night, also came 
bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 100 pounds weight. Nicodemus was a Pharisee, also a member of the Sanhedrin, who had become a follower of Jesus. The two disciples took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen wrappings with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. John 19.40 Being members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph and Nicodemus were well known and respected. If Jesus had simply passed out, why would these two well-known and respected leaders prepare his body for burial according to Jewish custom? That they followed Jewish burial customs in preparing Jesus' body confirms he was dead. Also, just as an aside, something interesting. According to Jewish custom, a body could not be altered because humanity was created in God's image. Because Genesis 3.19 states, For you are dust, and unto dust you shall return, a body could not be embalmed. And so after preparing the body, Joseph laid it in his own new tomb, which had been hewn out of the rock. That it was a new tomb means that no other body had ever been buried there. And it's not just any tomb. Joseph personally brought this tomb himself. And after placing Jesus' body in the tomb, Joseph rolled a large stone against the entrance of the tomb. Again, friends, if Jesus was simply unconscious, it would be ridiculous to place him in a tomb and roll a stone across the entrance of the tomb. As well, the use of Joseph's tomb fulfills another prophecy, the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 9. His grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death. If anyone doubted that Jesus was buried in Joseph's tomb, Matthew records that Mary Magdalene was there and the other Mary sitting opposite the grave. They were there to begin the Shiva, or the seven days of mourning for a loved one who died. These women were eyewitnesses of his burial, confirming that indeed Jesus was dead. If Jesus had simply been passed out, these women would not have sat there at the graveside grieving. Their presence at his grave demonstrates their love for Jesus. It also confirms the location of Jesus' tomb and that it was well known. And so we come to the final aspect of the Messianic cessation. The final aspect of the Messianic cessation is the guards placed at the tomb in Matthew 27, 62-66. Let's read verse 62. Now on the next day, the day after the preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered together with Pilate and said, Sir, we remember that when he was alive, the deceiver said, After three days I am to rise again. Therefore give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He is risen from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. Pilate said to them, You have a guard. Go, make it secure, as you know how. And they went and made the grave secure, and along with the guards they set a seal on the stone. Now notice that it's the next day. It's Nisan 15, the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. Matthew also says it's the day after the preparation, again confirming it's Nisan 15. Nisan 14, which was Passover, is a day of preparation because the first day of unleavened bread is a holy convocation. It's a special Sabbath in which no work could be performed. Leviticus 23, verse 7. And so on Nisan 15, the chief priests and the Pharisees met with Pilate saying, Sir, we remember that when he was still alive, that deceiver said, After three days I'm to rise again. 
Now, it's interesting that Matthew clarifies that the Pharisees appeared with the Sanhedrin. You see, back in Matthew 12, 38, the Pharisees said to Jesus, We want a sign from you. The Sadducees asked Jesus to show them a sign from heaven in Matthew 16, 1. And in both incidences, Jesus gave them a sign. In Matthew 12, 39 to 40, Jesus says, No sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus responded to the Sadducees in Matthew 16, 4, A sign will not be given except the sign of Jonah. Now the sign of Jonah was a prophecy of Jesus' resurrection. Jonah was swallowed up by a sea creature and died. His death is affirmed by Jonah 2.1. I cried for help from the depths of Sheol. Sheol is the abode of the dead. His body spent three days in the sea creature. His soul was in Sheol. And after three days, Jonah was spat up on the shore and resurrected to life. Jesus affirms that as Joseph died and was buried in the sea creature's stomach, his body would be buried in the earth. And just as Jonah's soul went to Sheol, so too did Jesus' soul. And as Psalm 16.10 prophesies, You will not leave my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Accordingly, these religious leaders requested Pilate to give orders for the grave to be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come and steal him away and say to the people, He's risen from the dead! Ironically, they accused Jesus and the disciples of deception while they've been promoting deception themselves. Their concern is that the disciples would steal Jesus' body and make him a resurrected martyr. Isn't it ironic, though, that these religious leaders believed in the possibility of Jesus' resurrection more so than the disciples who were hiding? Pilate agreed, commanded them to seal the tomb, and granted them use of the Roman guard to secure the tomb. Placing Roman guards at the tomb would deter anyone from attempting to steal the body. There was no worry that the guards would fall asleep or abandon their post as they would be executed for dereliction of duty. And so the religious leaders made the grave secure and along with the guard they set a seal on the stone. They secured the tomb by tying a rope or cord around the stone and securing the tied end with soft clay impressed with the imperial seal. And so to break into a sealed tomb would have been a criminal offense against Rome, which would result in severe consequence. The precautions taken by the religious leaders will in turn validate the claims that Jesus has indeed risen from the dead. You see, my friends, the machinations of religious and political madmen cannot deter the will of the sovereign God. And so the messianic cessation, the crucifixion, the death, the burial, the guards proves that Jesus the Messiah genuinely died. He did not swoon. He did not pass out. He died. And he died as the pun- because of the punishment of sin is death. We sinned. Our penalty is death. Eternal separation from God in the lake of fire. But Jesus the Messiah died as our substitute. He took our place so we could escape such a dreadful punishment. He died to reconcile us to God. It was not enough to simply save us from damnation. He had to go on and reconcile us. He had to restore our relationship with God. And he accomplished this by bearing our sin as the sin offering. 
As 1 Peter 2.24 triumphantly declares, He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by His wounds we are healed. As the centurion took it all in, he declared, Truly this was the Son of God. Each and every one of you must examine these events and ask yourself, Who is this man? If Jesus the Messiah is truly the Son of God, you must heed His message. John declares in John 20, 31, These things have been written so that you might believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you have life in His name. If He is the Son of God, then He is the Messiah. And if He is the Messiah, here's the command you must obey. Repent and believe the gospel. Believe that the Son of God died and shed His blood, was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. My friends, if you want to escape that eternal damnation, if you want Christ's substitutionary sacrifice on the cross to mean something to your life, if you want reconciliation with God, then my friends, there's only but one way, and that is to repent of your sin and believe the gospel. Father, our God, our King, our Lord, we come to you because of the sacrifice of the Messiah. And Lord, as we come to you in prayer, Lord, we come confessing that we are lost without you. That indeed we could not reconcile ourselves. Indeed, Father, we could not save ourselves from eternal damnation. And so we give you all the praise and all the glory for what you and your Son and your Spirit accomplished on our behalf. Oh, Father, I pray that you would lead us to that cross. Father, whenever we are tempted to sin, lead us to the cross. Lead us to Golgotha. Lead us to the place of death so that we can be reminded of what our sin cost. It didn't cost us anything, but it cost your son everything. Father, I thank you, though, that we don't serve a dead Savior. We serve a risen Savior. And Father, I ask and pray on behalf of each and every one of us listening that, Lord, you might forgive us. That you give each and every one of us a spirit of penitence, a spirit of repentance. That, Father, we would confess and forsake those sins that we might commit that make a mockery of what you accomplished, of what your son did on Calvary. Father, protect us from the tempter. As your son himself was protected from the tempter, so do the same for us. And to you, we give all the praise, we give all the glory for the marvelous, matchless, gift of salvation. And to that we say, Amen.